Amen. Well, we are going to finish John chapter 11. It took us uh, four weeks to get through it. We got Lazarus out the grave last week. And now we're going to look at the response to Lazarus being raised from the dead. If you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to John 11. And we're going to cover the last verses of John 11, starting in verse 45. John 11, starting in verse 45. It says, many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad, so that from that day on they made plans to put him to death. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the, the wilderness to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think, that he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. So I titled the message this morning, What Are We to Do With Jesus? What are we to do with Jesus? Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you for your word in John 11. And as we're going to look at the conclusion of the Lazarus story, we're going to look at the aftermath and the response to the amazing miracle of the raising of Lazarus from the dead. God, I pray that you would help us to respond accordingly. That as we study these responses of the different groups of people to the miracle of Lazarus being raised, Lord, may we learn and may we see maybe in our own lives, what our response has been or what it should be. And God, I pray that you would speak to every heart. Lord, I pray that you would be glorified in all of it. And I pray also, Lord God, that you would help me to open my mouth, to preach your word, and to exalt Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So it could be said that response to Jesus is one of the main themes of the Gospels. When you look at the life of Jesus and you study Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and just to, to, to say this about the four Gospels, the four Gospels are telling the same story about Jesus, the life of Jesus, but they're telling it from a unique perspective. Each Gospel writer tells uh, their different perspective and their experiences of Jesus, and, and they're, they're, they're telling it with a unique symmetry as far as the main point that Jesus is God, but they're coming at it to emphasize uh, something a little bit different about Jesus and something a little bit different like Matthew is focusing on Jesus as king and Mark focuses on, on Jesus as a servant and, and John is going overboard to talk about the signs of Jesus so that we would believe that he was Christ, the son of the living God. And so the gospels though, when you go through them, the, 
the, one of the main things that stands out, I think, in the Gospels is how people responded to Jesus. How did they respond? How would they respond when Jesus spoke, when he, when he, when he taught, when he did miracles, when he cleansed the temple, when he rebuked, when he had all the signs that he did? How would people respond? And what you see is Jesus moving and acting and teaching and rebuking and, and pleading and praying and walking in compassion. Then you have people who will respond either with rejection of Christ or they'll respond accordingly with worship, belief and worship. And, and this is what you see in the Gospels. And so over the next two weeks, today, which is Palm Sunday, and next Sunday, which is Easter Sunday, over this message and next message, we're going to really look at responses to Jesus. And in this text, we're going to see four responses to the raising of Lazarus and to what Jesus did when he raised a dead man to life. And then next week, we're going to look at John chapter 12 for the Easter message, and we're going to look at two people. We're going to look at Mary, who is the central figure in this story in John 11, and we're going to look at Judas. There's going to be two different responses in John 12 with Mary, who breaks the alabaster box, and with Judas, who gets angry. So Easter Sunday, two more responses, but today, four responses. And so Lazarus has just been raised, and the impossible has just made has been made possible by the only one who can do the impossible, right? Jesus raised Lazarus. And now, what are people going to do? What are they going to say? And you, you heard in the text, right? They asked a question, the Pharisees and the, and the leaders. What are we going to do? What are we going to do? That's a great question. What will they do? And what should their response be? Will they respond accordingly? Will they honor Christ as he alone deserves and he alone is worthy of? And so, in essence, the question is, is what are the reactions of this unheard of miracle? How are they going to respond to Jesus? Like, the evidence is overwhelming now. You could discredit Jesus and his teachings, and you could, you could do away with uh, some of the miracles and say, well, they really weren't sick. You know how you have a lot of people who claim to be faith healers today, and maybe, you know, you have those people who get somebody to put their legs together and one's, one's long, longer than the other and, and they have little tricks that they can kind of shift a foot a little bit or shift, shift at the heel to make it look like it's growing. Not, not you know, not parlor tricks, right? But, but maybe, maybe somebody could say, well, this person really wasn't sick. But this miracle, what have we been studying? He was dead for four days. It was undeniable that the man was dead, that Lazarus was dead. And Jesus comes and speaks to him and calls him out of the grave. And he's raised to life. What are they going to do? What are the people going to do? How are they going to respond? So three, we have three responses. There's two groups, three groups of people that respond. And then we're going to end with a conclusion with there's one man who responds. And if you listen to the text, that man is Caiaphas. So we'll conclude with Caiaphas. So, so let's look at the first group. Here's the first group. Point number one, many acknowledge the obvious reality. That, that's the first group we're going to look at in the text, that, that many acknowledge the obvious reality. Look back at the text, John eleven forty five. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. Now, I, I want to differentiate here. This does not mean that many of Israel, the whole nation, believed in Jesus, because we know in the end that there's nobody left. They all flee. They all abandon him. At the, at the birth of the church, there was only 120 people to start the church with. Think about that. 
Think of the tens of thousands of people that Jesus did miracles to and showed signs to. And at the end, there's 120 to start the church, even after his resurrection. Wow. So this is not the many. This is the many of the group that was with them. So, you know, some scholars believe a little different, but there was probably 50, 60, maybe 100 people that were a part of the, 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 the mourning of Lazarus' death that went to the grave and saw the miracle. And so it says in this text that many who saw that were at the grave, they, they acknowledged the obvious reality about Jesus, and they believed in him. They believed in him. And this word believe here, when it says they believed in him, it really does. The Greek word points to the reality of, of having trust in or the, the, the nature of Christian belief. That this just wasn't a superficial belief on these people's part. They believed in him as the son of God, as the Christ, the Messiah, the son of God. Wouldn't you? If you were at a tomb, I mean, let's think of this practically. You're at, you're at a funeral service, and four days later you go back, so your dead loved one, and, and Jesus comes and calls them out of the grave. What are you going to believe? Right? I mean, this obvious reality, this man is God. Only God can raise somebody from the dead. They'd never seen this before. And so this group of people responded to Jesus. It was not just a super, superficial belief, but a reflection of a heart that was trusting in Jesus as Christ, the Son of God. And I think about two accounts in the Gospel of John that, that we've studied uh, that, that really show a, a, a person or a group of people, uh, uh, but in particular two people here, that, that, that saw the obvious of Jesus, the obvious reality, and they believed. And they believed. The first one I thought of was, was the Samaritan woman. You remember the account of the Samaritan woman in John 4? Jesus comes and he's, he's thirsty, but he's on a mission. He was physically thirsty, but... You know, that's, that's a really good side note there. He, he, he did have physical, spiritual, uh, physical needs, but he was always on mission. How about our lives? We have a lot of physical things we have to do, don't we? We have jobs we have to go to. We have kids we have to raise. We, got, we, we have work we have to do, yard we got to cut. We got all kind of physical things that we need to do. But may we be like Jesus that in the midst of our physical responsibilities that we are always on mission. So Jesus showed up at the tomb to get water, but he was on mission to speak to a woman who needed a savior. He begins to talk to her, and he, he, he reads her mail, right? He, he exposes the reality of who she is, and she says, you must be a prophet. And he eventually culminates in telling her that, no, 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 I am the Christ. I, I, I'm the one that, that, that you've been waiting for. And so listen to John 4. So, when, so the woman left her water jar. She went away into town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And they went out of the town and were coming to him. And many Samaritans from the town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. Because he told me all that he ever did. You, you, you see what this woman, just, just like the many who believed the obvious reality of Christ, she believed that Jesus was not just an ordinary man. There was something different about him. She was convinced. She acknowledged the obvious reality. Think about John 9. Uh, that is such a great section in John 9. A man that was born blind. Why was he born blind? The disciples asked. Was it his fault or his parents? And Jesus said, neither he was born blind so that the glory of God could be revealed through him. And then he gets healed. And then he gets interrogated and investigated by the Pharisees who, who are willfully blind. They are blind physically, uh, excuse me, spiritually. This man was blind physically, 
but really the Pharisees are the true blind people of the story of John 9. And the man is acknowledging the obvious. Listen to this conversation in John 9 when the Pharisees are examining this guy and talking to him. He was just healed and never seen before in his life. Now he sees and the Pharisees say, we know that God has spoken to Moses, but as far as this man, speaking of Jesus, we don't know where he, where he comes from. And the man that was healed, the man that was born blind that was healed says, why, why, why this is an amazing thing. You don't know where he comes from. You're telling me you have no clue where this guy comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. That's how we would talk, right? Are you kidding me? Are you, are you an idiot? Like, you must be stupid. How thick is your skull? Are you serious? You don't know where he comes from? Look, I can see you. You have brown hair and blue eyes. I can see that pimple on your cheek now. How long has that been there, buddy? Are you telling me you don't know where he comes from? Right? We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. He's, he's saying the obvious reality of who Jesus is. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. So the Samaritan woman, the man born blind, and now the many at Lazarus' tomb who saw Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead, they believe. They believe the obvious, because it's obvious. It's obvious, right? I love what George R.R. R. Martin said. People often claim to hunger for the truth, but seldom like to taste when it is served up. People are hungry to know the truth, but they seldom like to taste when it is served up. It, it, it could be as obvious as the light of day, but if the truth is inconvenient to their agenda and what they're after in life, they don't want what is served up when the, the truth is right in front of them. And so there are people we're going to pivot to here in a moment that they don't want the truth about who Jesus is because it, it's, it's threatening their life. But there are, a group, there are groups of people who believe the obvious, the obvious reality about Christ. Because why? Because truth, when it stares you in the face, you better respond. When truth stares you in the face, you better respond. You know, when I, th I thought about that statement, truth staring you in the face, you know, the perfect embodiment of truth is Jesus Christ. There is no truer person that ever lived. No person who could say that they were 100% truth. There was no lie in the character and nature of Christ. He was truth in body form. And he stood in front of Pilate and listened to this conversation. Then Pilate said to him, John 18, so you are a king. And Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I've come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? So here you have Pilate staring truth in the face, and he's asking the question, what is truth? Some people don't like the truth that is served up and because they don't like how it tastes. It's not, it doesn't work with their agenda and their plan. They won't believe the obvious reality of who Jesus is. So the question for us today before we pivot is who are we going to be? Are, are, what are we going to believe? Are we going to believe the obvious reality of Jesus? That he's the son of God, that he was raised from the dead. We're going to celebrate that next week, his resurrection. But what, what, what are you going to believe? What are you going to believe about Jesus? We talked about this last week. Was he just a prophet or a good teacher, or a miracle worker? Who is Jesus? 
Is he just a religion of your ancestors? We talked about that last week. Who is Jesus? Or is he he the son of God who took your place, who died on the cross for your sins so that you could be forgiven? Will you believe, will will you believe Jesus? Will you believe in him? Will you repent and believe? Will you, will you follow Christ? Will you believe the obvious reality? Or secondly, will you be like this next group in John 11? Here's the next group. Second point, some, many believe, but some were deceived by their leaders. Will, will you walk in deception concerning Christ? Look at the back of the text, John 11:46. Many believed, because they believed the obvious reality of Christ and his power, But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So what did we start with? We started with the many who could put two and two together. Man was dead. Jesus called his name. Dead man walked out of the grave. Therefore, Jesus is God. That's the first group, right? But then we have a group that has obviously believed the narrative that the scribes and Pharisees have been selling about Jesus. Because what did they do? Some, not the many, but some, went over and said, hey, guys, guess what Jesus did now? He raised somebody from the dead. You need to know what Jesus is doing. You need to know what this, this guy, this miracle worker is doing. Lazarus is, mirac- is miraculously raised, and, and what should their response be? Their response should be worship. It should be worship, but instead, what does this group do? They go to the Pharisees, who they know hate Jesus, to inform them of of what Jesus has done. To inform them of what Jesus has done. You know, some some argue (coughs) that that this group, this some group, may have just been informing the leaders of what happened, like, you know, giving the news of it and that they weren't hostile. But the text really is showing a contrast between those who believe and those who don't. It's a direct contrast. Many believe in salvation, in a salvific way. They, they believed in Christ. And then there's a contrast, but there's some who go to hostile people to tell them about the person that they hate. So they're lumped together with those that are hostile. Instead of worshiping, these tattletales go and tell those that hate Jesus, Jesus is still up to the stuff that you don't like. Still up to the stuff that you don't like. I, I like what Homer Kent observes about this group of tattletales In his book, Light in the Darkness, listen to this. This response of unbelief in the face of the clearest proof is confirmation of Christ's teaching in Luke 16, 31. What did Jesus say? If they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded the one would rise from the dead. The chief cause of unbelief is not inadequate information, but a heart of rebellion against the authority of God and his word. And this is this group. I have a little compassion on these people. The first group they believe, but I have a compassion on these people that are deceived, because I believe they're deceived by their leaders. They're going to their leaders, and these leaders are supposed to have been leading them towards God. These Pharisees were experts in the Torah, and they knew the law. They knew the prophets. They knew the signs, and these leaders should have known that Jesus was the Messiah, the one they were waiting for, but they were so caught up in their own rules and ways that they could not see Jesus. They would not see him for who he was. They would not acknowledge the obvious reality, and they were leading people astray. The very ones who were supposed to understand the law didn't see it correctly. And listen, they refused to see it, and they led others down the same path of willful blindness. 
So, so I have to say this. It, it, it matters how you lead people. And it matters what you teach. It matters. The book of James chapter 3 verse 1 says, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers. For you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. You know, what's interesting is, is that you see Jesus has some of his harshest rebukes for those who were the teachers of the law during his day because they were blind to the truth. They were leading people astray. And so you see, really, and there's two sections here, one in Matthew, one in Luke. You see a strong rebuke of the Pharisees and the scribes, and you see a terrifying warning to them as they're leading people astray. Listen to the strong rebuke. Matthew 23, it says, But what are you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites? For you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. That's a, to make a disciple. And when he becomes a proselyte, a disciple, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. <laughs> wow. What a, what a rebuke. It's like Jesus would be looking at the preachers of today and tell them, you're making disciples, but you're making disciples twice as much a child of Satan as you are. Wow. Makes you think twice before you'd ever get up in the pulpit, right? Pray for us, your leaders. That we would never treat, treat, uh, teach error. That we would never lead you astray. That we would teach the word of God. Now, now, now listen, that was a strong rebuke. Now listen, listen to the warning. And he said to his disciples, temptations to sin, Luke 17. He said to his disciples, temptations to sin are sure to come. But woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he cast, was cast into the sea that he, then he would cause one of these little ones to sin. What a, what a warning. And these false shepherds of Israel were willfully blind and they were the blind leading others to blindness. They were the blind leading others to blindness, right? And so, yeah, they, they were the many that believed the obvious reality, but there were some who went back to their leaders, to their teachers, and those leaders and those teachers were leading them astray. They weren't showing them what the law and the prophets were truly saying about what the Christ would be like and what he would do. And they had plenty of enough prophecy to have understood who Jesus was. But these blind leaders, these blind Pharisees, were leading others to blindness, and Jesus warned them, it'd be better that you would be drowned than to cause someone to sin. Wow. Lead people to blindness. You guys remember March 26, 1997? March 26, 1997, 39 people were found dead, lying peacefully with no sign of trauma, and they were dressed in dark clothes and Nike tennis shoes. They were in their beds. You remember what happened? Somebody said that the hell bop comment, otherwise known as the followers of Heaven's Gates, it was a religious cult. It was later revealed that the men and women were members of the Heaven's Gates religious cult whose leaders preached that suicide would allow them to leave their bodily containers and enter an alien spacecraft hidden behind the Hale-Bopp comet. 
Anybody remember who the leader was? Marshall Applewhite. If you want to be freaked out a little bit, uh, watch some YouTube videos of Marshall Applewhite talk. Wow. I did that this week. <laughs> That's amazing. So in late March 1997, as a Hellbop comet reached its closest position uh, to Earth, uh, Applewhite convinced 38 of his followers and he himself to drink a poisonous solution, and they all died. Right? And it's stunning to see what people will fall for, is it not? It's stunning to see what people will fall for. It's sad to watch people be led astray from sound doctrine, just to see what people will fall for. So, so, so here, here's something for us to, to think about. When we're thinking about the many that believe, but, but the, the some, the few that, that were deceived by their leaders, and, and then you think about a, a cult leader, you think, well, I'll never be, be deceived by a by a crazy psychopathic cult leader, right? And, and prayerfully, that would not be the case, right? But, but have you believed lies that are cl- cleverly packaged by evangelical leaders who twist scripture for their own ends, right? Here's three common ways in which I think leaders or preachers or pastors lead people astray. Three, I think I would call them umbrella areas that you could put false teaching under. And I had to end with isms because the false teaching, I think, is an ism. So we have three isms, legalism, antinomianism, I'll explain what that is, legalism, antinomianism, and emotionalism. Legalism, antinomianism, and emotionalism, three ways which which maybe you have been deceived before, or maybe this will open your eyes to something here. So, So here's one way that leaders lead people astray through legalism, legalism that adds to the work of Christ. Legalism adds to the work of Christ. What did we talk about last week? We cannot in any way, shape, or form, add to the work of Christ. The book of Hebrews is an entire book written to to Jewish believers who are being tempted to go back to the Mosaic ceremonial sacrificial system. The book of Galatians is a similar book with a similar theme. And, And the point is this, is that Jesus' sacrifice on the cross was once and for all done. It was one sacrifice. No more need for a sacrifice for sins. And so when you become a follower of Jesus Christ, you do not have to add legalistic standards upon your life for the sake of maintaining justification before God. Now, obviously, we talked about last week how the Christian life is, is, not, is not the opposite of that, which is now it's, that's the second ism, antinomianism, which, which means anti-law. And here's another way that people get deceived, by anti-law. And antinomianism, it minimizes the effects of Christ. So you have those who want to add to the work of Christ by saying you got to do this penance and you got to do this to to maintain your salvation. Then you have those who say because salvation is by grace alone, you can live however you want to live. It doesn't matter how you live. Anti-law, the law doesn't matter. But the law is good. And a Christian who does not have good works and fruit that demonstrates a surrender to Christ needs to examine themselves to see if they're in the faith, right? So, so legalism, antinomianism, well, here's another ism, emotionalism. Emotionalism that replaces the worship of Christ with the worship of self. And I think in some way this is one of the most popular isms that's out there that leads people astray. It's your Christian life is based upon your emotions, that you're led astray by people who want you to, 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 to tap into the worship of self and it's self-centered Christianity. Everything is centered around your needs, your desires, your wants, your, your pet theology, your pet doctrine, whatever you desire, whatever you want, your emotional feels, right? 
legalism, antinomianism, emotionalism. So, so I, I would end this section with this. One of the greatest needs that we have in the body of Christ is for discernment. That we would not be a part of the sum. That we'd be led astray and deceived by leaders and by teachers and preachers and pastors. That we would stay grounded to the foundation of God's word. And that, that, that we would not see that we got to add to the work of Christ. That we, would not, that we would not downplay the effect of the work of Christ, which is that it will change a life. And that we will not be led by our emotions and our feelings in our Christian life. That we would be led by the solid foundation of God's word. Amen? So how did the people respond to Christ? In the powerful demonstration of his deity, what we've seen so far that there was many that believed the obvious reality. And there were some that were deceived by their leaders. And now the third group, there were some who were only concerned about themselves. Look, look back to the text. Some, number three, were only concerned about themselves. John 11, so the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. So what's, what's, what's happened here? There, there's some that they're really only concerned about themselves in their response to Jesus and his miracle. So the informants get to the chief priests and the scribes and the Pharisees, and they tell them this new thing that Jesus has done. This is what he's done now. And you know what? Honestly, that should have been it. That should have been all the information that they needed. Are you serious? He raised from someone from the dead? Let me go check this out. But what, what, what was their response? It was a question. What are we to do? What are we to do? What are we to do? And so at, you can stop there and you can think, well, that's a good question. What are you to do? What should you do when you see somebody do what's impossible? What are you to do whenever you're faced with the reality of who Christ is? What are you to do? And, and certainly, certainly the obvious answer here is that they should worship. They should fall on their face in repentance, sackcloth and ashes, and they should repent for their hatred towards Christ up to this point. That's what they should do. What are we to do? Worship Jesus, repent and believe. But what was behind the question? Was it a genuine question? I don't believe it was, right? Because we see it in the text. Look back, verse 48. Let's look at it again. What are we to do? And look at what they say. He's doing so many signs. Look at verse 48. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Isn't that an amazing statement? They ask a question, what are we to do? And that's a great question they should ask. And then they make this crazy, prideful statement. If we let him go on like this, at that point, somebody needed to tell them, who do you think you are if we let him go on like this? They clearly did not <laughs> see Jesus as the son of God, right? If we let him go. How amazing it is. Listen, when created beings believe that they have the power to do anything that God doesn't allow them to do, right? How often do we see confident political leaders or leaders who think they are autonomously powerful? I mean, think about that. If we let him go on, what are we to do? Well, 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 we have the power to stop him or to not stop him, right? If we let him go on. I, I, I think those, this reminded me of something here. I think those in positions of power or authority need to be reminded of what God reminded the prideful ruler of Babylon of. Do you, do you remember that? 
Daniel chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar, he stood on top of his palace. He looked at, at all of Babylon. He says, look at this kingdom that I have created, that I have built. It, it reflects my majesty and my power. And God humbled him and made him eat like, a, like an animal on the ground for seven years. And that's what it says here in Daniel 4. You shall be driven out from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know what shall we do if we let him go on like this? Until you know, oh, oh ruler who thinks you have all power, until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Amen? So what are we to do? Well, they're on the wrong track here because they, they, they think they're the ones that are in charge. Look, look, look back to their question. What's behind their question? They're behind their question back to verse 48. If, if, if we let him go on like this, everyone's going to believe in him, and the Romans will come. And, and, and here's, here's what's behind the question. The Romans will come, and they'll take away our place and our nation. So what's behind the question based upon their statement? It's a question that is motivated by self-preservation. They're worried about their position and their place. These rulers don't want to lose their prominence or power. Why? Because they love it. They love their position of prominence and power. How do we know that? Jesus' rebuke of them. Look, look to Matthew 23. Do you remember the rebuke we read earlier? Listen to what Jesus says of them. They, they don't want to lose their position and power. They're worried about Jesus, everyone following after Jesus and believing in him. And they're worried about instability with Rome and Jesus. And, and that the, Rome's going to take away their, their position and their place and their power and their nation. And listen to what Jesus says of these Pharisees. Matthew 23, they do all their deeds to be seen by others. For they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, and they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. Do you see it? They, they weren't believing the obvious about Jesus, and they were leading and deceiving people to reject Jesus as the Messiah, and they themselves, the reason they were rejecting and the reason they were asking a question about what they were to do about the miracle of Jesus was not because they believed in Jesus. It's because that they hated Jesus and that Jesus was a threat to their position and their power. Why? Because they loved their position and their power more than they loved Christ. They loved to be called rabbi. They loved places of honor in the temple. They loved the prestige and the honor and the position of authority and power. These religious leaders had missed the entire point of their responsibility. God had given these shepherds of Israel the responsibility to point others to him and not to themselves. And these religious leaders were missing that. And they were not following through. And today, religious leaders are not like these Pharisees today. There are some where the light shines so brightly on themselves that the light of Christ cannot be seen. Just as these Pharisees, they, they, they want the light to shine so brightly on them so that no one else could look away from them and look towards another person. And it's so tragic when you see that. They were so self-absorbed that they couldn't and then ultimately wouldn't see Jesus correctly. So have you ever been around someone who doesn't judge the moment correctly. Do you know what I mean by judging the moment correctly? Like maybe, maybe like this, the moment calls for seriousness, but they just act like a goofball. 
You ever been around that and you just want to like pop them a good one? Like, stop. Sometimes your kids do that. <laughs> like, it's not time for this. Calm down, right? The moment calls for seriousness, but they're acting goofy. Or what about this one? The moment calls for levity, you know, lightness, but they're too serious. And you go up to them like, lighten up, dude. Come on, it's okay. You don't have, like, take a deep breath. Inhale, exhale. It's okay, you can relax. What about this one? I think some of us can be guilty of this. The moment calls for listening, and all we do is, is talk. I was listening to a pastor friend of mine, Matt Bell. He, he had the amazing, just weighty responsibility to oversee a funeral of a, a husband who murdered his wife and his daughter and then committed suicide. And they were members of his church. And so he had to walk through that in his church. And he had the funeral for the, for the mother and the nine-year-old daughter. And I was listening to his, his talk, his message on the Sunday morning, the day before the funeral, and he said this phrase I thought was really powerful for us to think about. He said, he, he said this, when somebody is going through suffering and trials, what we as believers need to do, we need to not forget the ministry of presence. The ministry of presence. And what he said, and he explained it, he said, what I'm, what I'm saying is this, is that sometimes you just don't need to say anything, and you just need to be present. Sometimes we, we think we, we need to say all these words to try to help people figure it out. No, you just need to be there with your loved one, with your family, with your brother in Christ, sister in Christ who is suffering. Sometimes the moment calls for listening, but they can't keep their mouth shut. So, so what did this moment call for? What did this moment call for? What should we do? What did this moment call for? Jesus is clearly the son of God. The moment called for repentance and worship. And they, they, they missed the moment. They missed the moment. Truly, truly, they could have investigated. When the tattletales came and their, their, their deceived followers came to them and said, look, Jesus did this. He raised him from the dead. They, they had the same opportunity when the man was born blind, right? And they investigated. They could have investigated and found out, is it true? Was he really dead for four days? And then after the investigation, and they asked the question, what should we do? The answer should have been a resounding, don't miss the moment. Fall on your face and worship God. Yes. You remember when Jesus walked on the water and he got back to the boat? Peter, before they got back to the boat, Peter jumped in and he walks on the water for a little bit, but then Peter sinks because he's human. He was only held up by Jesus for a little bit and then he fell down. But Jesus walks all the way to the boat in the water. You remember what the disciples did? They fell on their face, and they worshiped Jesus. Because obviously, Jesus is not like us. And you know what Jesus didn't do? He didn't say, okay, no, no, stop, stop, don't worship me. He let them worship him as God. The moment called for worship, but these people couldn't see past the end of their nose and their power and their position. So what about us today, right? In a culture that makes everything about us, right? Right? Same thing as these Pharisees. It's all about them. They can't see Christ. What about us today in a culture that makes everything about us, in a culture that tells us to focus on self-care? Right? It's all about self-care right now. Everything on social media is about self-care. And I, I tell you, take care of yourself. Take a bath. Get help if you need help. But, man, we are in an overload about self-care. How about caring about other people? 
That'll take care of your self-care. We're so overanalyzing ourselves that we can't see past the end of our nose to care about anybody else, right? What about us? Are we going to miss the moment of Christ in our life, or are we going to be so focused on self-care, so focused on self-absorbed living at every turn? Are we going to be able to stop? Can we take the time to look outside of ourselves and see Christ? You know, false religion, it really is only about looking inward. Christianity is about looking outside of yourself to the only one who can save. Will we acknowledge the obvious and worship Christ instead of ourselves? So the earthly life of Jesus, as I started off with, was marked by responses to his life. Those who acknowledged the obvious and believed and those who did not. And so far we've seen in this text the response to the raising of Lazarus. We've seen it, right? Many acknowledge the obvious reality. And and yes, high five, fist bump, you believe and we'll see you in heaven. Some were led astray by their leaders. And may we we live sober lives as concerning what we listen to and what, what we absorb. What are you listening to? Don't be deceived. Don't be led astray. And some... They didn't believe because they were only concerned about themselves. They were too busy worshiping themselves, and they could not worship Christ. So here's the conclusion. There's one more person left, right? You had the many, and you had the some. You had another group. Now you have who? Caiaphas. Look back to the text as as we conclude. John 11. But one of them, many, some, but one of them, Caiaphas, who was a high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all. Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied, wow, that Jesus would die for the nation. Not for the nation only, but also to gather into one children, into one, the children of God who are scattered abroad, so that from that day on, so from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. So I, I say it like this, the last response comes from an accidental prophet. I'm here to tell you, Caiaphas was not trying to prophesy. His motives were not pure. His motives were not pure. What's interesting, this is kind of a good example for us for for what verbal inspiration would be like in the scripture. That somebody was, was moved along by the spirit of God to say something that was divinely inspired. And Caiaphas didn't realize what he was saying. Why do we know that? Because of what he was saying. That's why we know, because of what he said. What was he saying? In essence, this is what Caiaphas was saying. Guys, listen. Y'all are freaking out about Jesus. But listen, quit your talking. You don't know anything. Here's what you need to do. Here's what Caiaphas was saying. It would be better for Jesus to die in place of the whole nation. So you're right, guys. You're worried about your place and your position. You're right. It would be better for Jesus to die in place of the whole nation than for the whole nation to die because of Jesus. You see it? Caiaphas is not a follower of Jesus. He's not defending Jesus here. He's on the side of the Pharisees. He's just trying to speed up the process. He's trying to get them motivated again. We're almost a little over a week away from his death. So here's what Caiaphas is saying. Problem solved, guys. Let's kill Jesus. So Caiaphas puts into action, puts into words what the Pharisees have already been talking about. And what's amazing is is that in this sovereignly orchestrated declaration Caiaphas is used by God, listen, to set in motion the eternal plan of God for the redemption of all who would believe in Jesus. Did you hear that? He's just speaking out of jealousy like the Pharisees. He's speaking out of concern and hatred like the Pharisees. And he's saying, guys, 
it would be better for one man to die for the people than for all the people to die. He's speaking of substitutionary atonement and didn't even realize it. And you know what's amazing is? Is that God is using him to set in motion and get the wheels spinning. Do you notice at the end of the text, from that moment on, they sought all the more to kill Jesus, to arrest him and to kill him. So Caiaphas said, let's go, guys. Let's get him. But it was God's plan. It was God's timetable. This is so amazing. This last response shows us that God is working his plan for his glory in spite of what we see going on all around us. My brothers and sisters, isn't that encouraging? You got Caiaphas talking about killing Jesus. You got people in culture saying that you got to blame Christians for everything that's going on, right? God's working his plan. He is in control and he is in charge. And the truth is this, if people acknowledge the obvious or they reject, like Caiaphas and the Pharisees, God is unfolding his plan of redemption and he's simply using those who reject him as a part of that plan. Amen? And that made me really happy while I was studying this week. That's a powerful conclusion there. So, so, really, so really the question as, as we end is, is who are we going to be? Are we going to be the many? Are we going to be the some? Are we going to be the Pharisees? Are we going to be Caiaphas? What are we going to do? And, and I, can't, I couldn't help but think about Palm Sunday. What, 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 what happened? What happened when Jesus leaves here and he eventually heads to Jerusalem and he gets into the city and it's the feast of Passover. It's Passover week and there's hundreds of thousands of people that have migrated to Jerusalem to celebrate the feast of Passover. And he gets into the city and he's on a donkey. What do they do? What's their response to Christ? Hosanna in the highest. And they throw palm branches down and blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Listen to Luke 19. This is so powerful. And when he said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. And as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen. That's so good. Why did they praise him? Because of the obvious realities, right? And what were they saying? Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And listen, some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. Rebuke the many who believe in you, Jesus. Rebuke them. Because they keep saying things they shouldn't say. Rebuke them. You know what Jesus says? In essence, he says this. He answered, I tell you, They're only acknowledging the obvious reality. They're only acknowledging the obvious reality, guys. I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Amen? If these were silent, the very stones would cry out. So here's, here's the end. Whether we acknowledge the obvious reality or we won't, the very creation itself, the book of Psalms says, declares the glory of God. Amen? Amen.